Psalm 12 in your Bible. Find it, Psalm 12, and stick your finger in it. We'll come back to it in a little bit. And then Psalm 119. These are two of a great many passages of Scripture that deal with the subject of the Word of God. Okay? That is my subject this morning. What can we expect in the year 2014? I asked that question to two different people yesterday, and one of them said, well, I expect things will just go on the way they are. And the other one said, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but I don't see it getting better. And I asked the question based on Psalm, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus', Jesus' disciples said to him, What's it going to be like when you set up your kingdom? What can we look for? What are the signs of your coming? And Jesus said, sign number one, let no man deceive you. Let no man deceive you. He gets down to the end of that passage and he closes it out with, an admonition about, again, about being deceived. And so it appears that while there are numerous signs in geology, earthquakes everywhere, in medicine, diseases that keep cropping up uh, and and mutations in viruses that uh, seem to be incurable, New bacteria, strange, that are resistant to antibiotics. All of these things are, are signs of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said there will be deception in religion. Changes in religion. Massive deception. Some people will even go so far as to say, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And I thought, I will never in my lifetime see that until it was reported on the news that a famous Hollywood movie star made the statement that Barack Obama is our Messiah and Savior. Okay? And I thought, okay, that boy's obviously not kept up with his scripture reading. (coughs) He'd know better. But the fact that he said it indicates that he has already been deceived. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Does that need explanation? What does the word forever mean? 
That means without end. Always has been, always will be. Forever, O Lord, thy word. Is there any question about what thy word is? Let me show you a copy of thy word. Okay? Here it is. Thy word. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That means it never changes. It never changes. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be the same. Now, Psalm 12. Move back to Psalm 12 with me, if you would. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord. Uh, You know what words? There you go. Look. Look quick. This is the words. These are the words. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a firmness of fire. Purified seven times. Silver often is purified seven times. Do you know when you can tell silver is pure? If you got it in uh, a little smelter thing and, you, and you, it, the dross rises to the top and you, and you take a little spoon, actually it's not a spoon, ladle, I don't know what else to call it, and you scrape off the dross that rises to the top. You know how you can tell when the silver is purified? When you can see your reflection in it. Okay? God's Word is so pure that He sees His reflection in it. That's why everything we need to know about God we find in this book. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. To keep means to guard. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation, how long? Forever. Now, what generation are you talking about? He's talking about the generation 1,500 years ago. Excuse me, 3,000 years ago. When David wrote this psalm. He wrote this psalm 1,000 years before Christ was born. 3,000 years ago, he said, you're going to preserve your word from this generation forever. From David's time till now. You say, but Brother Casey, wasn't the scripture written in Hebrew back then? Yes, it was. Do I read Hebrew? No, I don't. But I know men who do. Men that have proven to be trustworthy. In fact, Ezra, the priest, was one of those trustworthy men. At the end of the Babylonian captivity... Ezra gathered together 70 men and they took the copies of the Old Testament scrolls and they prayed over them and they looked at them and they combined them into what we now know as the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And everybody said, well, that was 500 years before Christ was born, 2,500 years ago. How do we know that uh, with all the copies that have made since then that the Masoretic text is still accurate? Well, surprise, surprise. 1947, this little shepherd boy lost some sheep, actually goats. 
and he's wandering around near Masada and on the edge of the Dead Sea, and there's a bunch of caves up on this hillside, and he thinks maybe his goats, which climb better than he does, has gotten into these caves. And so he starts throwing rocks in the caves. You hit a goat with a rock, even in a cave, and he'll jump and, and bat at you. See? Bat. Make some kind of noise. Kind of like little brothers. You hit a brother with a rock, they'll make some kind of noise. <laughs> okay? And he throws this rock up in there, and he hears something go crack. And he thinks, what in the world? And he climbed up, and he discovered clay pots. One of them he had broken. Clay pots sealed up with scrolls inside them and pieces of fragments of scrolls and parchments. And so he gathers some of them up, takes them back to his little Bedouin tent, and gives them to his dad, and his dad takes them to Jerusalem and sells them to an antique dealer. And the antique dealer sells them to somebody else. And pretty soon it's discovered that these scrolls were written a hundred years before Christ to the time of Christ. And one of those scrolls is a complete copy of the book of Isaiah written 2,000 years ago. And they take this scroll and they unroll it very carefully and they take the Masoretic text and they open it up, and they're exactly the same. When you read in the New Testament the word scribe, do you know what the word scribe means? We always took it to mean somebody who writes stuff down. No, that's a secretary. Okay? An amanuensis. A scribe is a counter. Okay? A counter. The scribes were responsible for making copies of the Word of God. They would write out each letter, and they would write out a space about this wide, and from, uh, well, from right to left. We read left to right. Hebrew is written right to left. So I'm looking at it correctly. Y'all are seeing it backwards. How's that? Okay. And they write the letters out, and then they skip down to the next line, and they write them out, and they get done with three or four lines, and they stop, and they count every letter, and they compare every letter to the letters that they have uh, copied to make sure they are exactly the same and they have the exact same number of letters. They do the whole column. And then they count the letters in the column. And they go back and they make sure that it matches the number of letters in this column. So it's checked three or four times. If a mistake is made, then they cut it out and put a neat piece of parchment behind it and put the correct letter they skip a letter. They go back and fill it in. But they are the counters. And they have done that recognizing that it is a holy responsibility to God. And they've done it for since the time of David. Possibly since the time of Moses, which was 450 years before that. And so they have this precise copy of the Word of God. In the Masoretic text. That's the same as the Masoretic text today. Now, they took that Masoretic text and they translated it into Greek and they called it the Septuagint, the 70. Well, 70 men worked on it. And so here we have the Masoretic text in Hebrew, we have the Greek text, uh, excuse me, we have the Greek text of the Old Testament, and the translation is literal, word for word. 
And then they began gathering together about 220 A.D. The writings of the apostles and the early church fathers, and they put them together. 29 books. 29, 27, 37 books in the Old Testament, 29 books in the New Testament. Yeah, 29 books. And they had specific rules and regulations for what, what, what was considered an inspired book, inspired by the Word of God. And two words keep coming up all through history. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. Inspiration simply means God breathed. God said it. We find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction, in, uh, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In the time of Martin Luther, Martin Luther realized that the common people were not going to be able to read the Scriptures on their own as long as it was in Latin because they were forbidden to learn Latin. And they were forbidden to learn Greek. Forbidden to learn Hebrew. So they weren't ever going to be able to read the Scriptures. And so he began translating the Word of God into German. Because he read Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And German pretty well, being a German, you know, primary language. And so he translated the Word of God into German for the Germans. In England, John Wycliffe began translating Scripture into English for English plowboys so that they could read the Word of God in English. And all this time, it's against the law to print the Bible in the language of the common people. He ended up giving his life for it. Was he martyred for it? No, he died a natural death. But 30 years after he died, they dug up his bones and burned them to show their disapproval that he translated the Bible into English, parts of the Bible into English. And then a couple hundred years later, this guy named John Wycliffe, excuse me, uh, William Tyndall comes along. And William Tyndall translates the Bible into English. By that time, there are, oh, 10, 12,000 copies of the Word of God in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. And they take all of these various texts and they combine them all together and they discover that all of the differences, all of the variations in, uh, in these various copies are less than what will fill one typewritten page. Okay? And they, they call this the received text, the textus receptus. He said, Brother Casey, when are you going to get in your message? As soon as I get done with the introduction. <clears throat> when do I ever get into my message? Okay. 
They call it the received text or the textus receptus. And that's what William Tyndall used to translate the scriptures into English. The interesting thing about John Wycliffe is that Wycliffe had a bunch of preacher boys who would come to his house and make copies of his translation for themselves because they didn't have a printing press yet. No printing press. So they, they made copies. And there are, quite honestly, a couple of hundred copies of Wycliffe's translations still in existence. So lots of guys writing lots of copies of the Word of God. Not that unusual today. In China, if there's only one Bible in the province, then you borrow a couple of pages and you take it home and you write out your own copy. You take those, give them to your neighbor, who's also a believer, if he's a believer, and you give them to him, and and he takes them and he gives you the pages that he has, and you copy those. And you keep copying them until you have your own copy of a whole book of the New Testament. A whole book of the Bible. Let me challenge you to sit down, take your Bible, and copy just one chapter. Okay? Now, most of you will go for Psalm 117. It's only got two verses. Okay? But try to copy. I try to copy in one of the longer chapters. It's the Word of God. It's worth it to have your own copy. Well, Tyndall translated it, got it printed, and they began distributing copies all over England. And then a group of scholars got together and they took Tyndall's translation and did an authorized translation and dedicated it to King James, who gave him permission and, in fact, paid for the translation to take place. And we call that the King James Version. It was published in 1611. This is not it. This is still a King James, still the authorized version. But they made changes through the years. The first copy of the King James Version had verses repeated, Words left out. One of the there were three editions the first year, and one of the editions used the pronoun she for God. It didn't take them long to realize that was a mistake. Whoa, that's not in any of the other translations or any of the other uh, any of the ancient manuscripts. So they went back and changed it. See, this is about seventeen uh, eighteen thirty seven, last revision. Okay. Let me get into the message. Either God keeps his word or he doesn't. Okay? His word says that he will preserve his word from this generation forever. And I believe he has done that. So why do we have 37 different English translations available today? As I've shared with you before, the thing that drives new translations is money. 
Okay? You can't copyright the King James. It's in public domain. So if you want to publish a new copy of the Scripture, you either have to copyright the notes that somebody writes to go in it, like the MacArthur Study Bible or the Charles Stanley Study Bible or the Jimmy Swaggart Study Bible or whatever, and go on and on, okay? And you copyright the notes and publish the Bible, or you just retranslate the Bible. Now, if God's Word is preserved, if He kept His promise, then what we need to do is accept it. Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Old Testament has been copied accurately through the years. We combine all of the New Testament fragments that we can find, and we copy those, collect them together, and that's what we call the received text. But the new translations are a result of the work of two men called Westcott and Hort. One's Roman Catholic, the other's Jewish. And they discover, or they are made aware of the discovery of two very ancient New Testament copies in Greek. One of them is found in St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai, or what they call Mount Sinai. And the priests who live there are using it to start the fire in the stove every morning. This guy finds that they're burning this ancient copy of the New Testament in Greek. And he scoops up all the pages he can find and he takes them back to Rome and he says, look what I found. The Codex Sinaiticus. Pretty cool, huh? Why were they burning it? Well, because they had accurate copies. This thing has, has errors in it. It's a poor copy. It's a, I mean, it's, it's not trustworthy. And they knew it, so they're using it for kindling. And then, in the Library of the Vatican, they find an ancient manuscript from Alexandria, Virginia. Excuse me, Alexandria, Egypt. I knew there's two of them. Okay, from Alexandria, Egypt, which was the, excuse me, the uh, the center for the Gnostics. The the Gnostics were those men who believed that good is bad and bad is good. Okay, Gospel according to Judas was written by the Gnostics about 300 years after Jesus died, and of course, Judas died the same day Jesus did. But uh, but the Gospel of Jesus just says that Jesus came to Jesus Jesus came to Judas and said, "Hey, listen, I'm supposed to die for the sins of the whole world, and you're the only one I can trust to go to the priest and betray me so that I can fulfill God's will." And makes Judas out to be the hero. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw it and shook my head. Okay, I'm acquainted with one of the men who who did the translation. And uh, somebody, I, I was in a seminar one time, and somebody asked him the question, is the gospel of Judas tr- true? And he said, that's not the right question. You've got to ask a series of questions to, before you can ask that. A series of questions is this, who wrote it? Why did they write it? And why did they call it what they did? 
When did they write it? So he said, let's answer those questions. This is written 350 years after Judas died. Why did they call it the Gospel of Judas? Well, because they wanted to have some credibility. Who wrote it? The Gnostics. The New Testament writers, the, the apostles, John especially. Oh, wow. He wails on the Gnostics. Okay? And then, uh, what was the last question? First question? Excuse me? Something about why did they call it what they did? Or No, I don't remember. What? Oh, who wrote it? Yeah, the Gnostics wrote it. And why did they write it? They write to promote their doctrine. Okay? We know the doctrine of the Gnostics is wrong, so is the books they published wrong? Are they true? No. Okay? Simple enough. And so the Alexandria text, the Alexandria Codex, had been in storage for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because it was not reliable. Nobody used it to make copies. You took a reliable copy and you made copies. So that's what God did. Westcott and Hort took these two copies of the, Old, of the Scriptures and they said, the New Testament Scriptures specifically, they said, since these are the oldest, these must be the closest to the original. <laughs> okay? Not. They're the oldest because everybody knew they weren't trustworthy. Nobody used them to make copies. Nobody read them. Stuck them in a box. But they took these two and they laid them out side by side and they went through and they compared verse to verse. And as they compared the verses, if there was a, a, a difference in this passage and, and a difference in this passage, then they decided between them which one was probably the right one, the right version. And they rejected the other. And if there was a passage over here and the accompanying passage or the comparable passage on this side was missing, then they'd say, oh, well, maybe this shouldn't be here. Or, oh, yeah, this is, this is right, but they must have just left this out. And they went through the New Testament verse by verse and created what's called the Nestle's check text. Nestle's, okay? N-E-S-T-L-E-S. Nestles. And Nestles is based on their two opinions. One's Jewish, one's Roman Catholic. And they're deciding what God's Word says from two ancient manuscripts that were obvious mistakes. Yeah. Why did I tell you all that? Because of this. What's the most popular version of the Scripture apart from the King James available today? Somebody tell me. NIV, New International Version. Guess what it was translated from? Nestles. Okay? Second, the most literal translation available today. New American Standard. Guess what, transla- guess what version, what text it's translated from? Nestles. 
not from the received text that was used for 1,500, 1,700 years from the time of Christ. No, not the text that the King James was translated from, okay? Now, King James was translated and published when? 1611. That's 402 years. 402 years. God has used the King James Version incredibly all around the world. It's been translated into hundreds of languages. The New International Version uses the dynamic equivalency principle of translation, which translates the thoughts, not the words. New American Standard Version translates the words, not the thoughts. Well, wait a minute. If you're using a corrupted text, then are the thoughts going to be correct? No. If you're using a corrupted text, are the words going to be correct? No. So you better go with one that's translated from the right text. And one that has seen God's approval for the past 402 years. And one that God has used incredibly for 400 years. You say, but Brother Casey, it's hard to understand. Yeah, but not because of the English. It's hard to understand because our minds are hard of understanding. We don't allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. We read to find out what we want to know rather than what God wants us to know. The way of salvation is quite clear. Let me see what else I got in my notes here. I think I have something of interest. Yeah. Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 56. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me. In the King James, it says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Luke 9.56 in the New International Version. And they went to another village. Matthew 18.11 in the King James. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Matthew chapter 18 verse 11 in the New International. Oh, it's not there. Okay, Matthew chapter 9 verse 13. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the King James. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, New International Version. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Where's to repentance? Or is he just calling sinners? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this answers the question, who did Jesus die for? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the end of the passage says, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 in the New International Version says, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Okay? John chapter 6, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. New International Version, John chapter 6, verse 47. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. 
believes what? Luke chapter 2, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. King James. New International Version. Luke chapter 2, verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Mark chapter 3, verse 15, King James Version. He's talking about the disciples. And he gave them power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. Mark chapter 3, verse 15, New International Version. Authority to drive out demons. Mark chapter 11, verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father. Mark chapter 11, verse 26, New International Version. Whoops, not there. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 28. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 28. Oops, not there. New International Version. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, King James Version. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, 44, New International Version. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And finally, John chapter 16, verse 16. King James Version. A little while, and you shall not see me. And again a little while, and you shall see me. Because I go to the Father. John chapter 16, verse 16, New International Version. In a little while, you will see me no more. And after a little while, you will see me. What about because he was going to the Father? That's just two pages what I found. Because I knew y'all didn't want to stay all afternoon. What I want you to know is, in 2014, you're going to see a lot more massive deception a lot of the preachers that are now well-known because of their ministry on television, you will discover using other versions of Scripture. See? One of two things is happening. Either they are deceived or they are trying to deceive you. This is just a word of warning. You say, Brother Casey... I expected a salvation message this morning. Okay, let me give you one. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among me and whereby you must be saved. What's the name? Jesus. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord... Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, it says in the King James, which means Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession, excuse me, with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, let me explain to you the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. This is the gospel whereby you're saved. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's how people get saved. Believing that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That they're paid for and so God raised him from the dead. And you put your faith and trust in him. Now I warn you about deception because if you take everything I say at face value and I make a mistake, I am partially responsible, but you are responsible also. You better know the book so that you know if I make a mistake. This book is infallible. No mistakes. This man is not infallible. Filled with mistakes. And I want you to know Jesus. I don't care if you ever know me. I don't care if the world ever hears anything about Randy Casey, but I want the world to know about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Because He's the only way to be saved. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And somebody said, but, but Brother Casey, what about all the other religions? If they're not declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, then they are wrong. They are deceptive. It's not that we're all going to heaven from a different road. It's that everybody who's not on the one way is not going to heaven. It's the last Sunday of 2013. I don't want you to go into... 2014, deceived about what the Bible is and what the Word of God is. Now, you want the absolute worst translation of the Bible? There's two. New World Translation. Okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses took it, the King James, and retranslated it to support their doctrine, to make it say what they wanted to say. Okay? The other is the message. Okay? And I've met people recently who say, Oh, Brother Casey, have you seen the message? No, I haven't. I've read excerpts from it. <clears throat> They're not even close to this. Whoa. It's like somebody set out to write a new version of the Bible. Because they didn't like the one the Holy Spirit gave us. So there it is. I leave it up to you. It's your choice. Because I've done what I was supposed to do.
There will be a test, by the way. Okay? I'm not giving it. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for the things done in the flesh, whether they be good or evil. Okay? So you'll be responsible for what you do with the knowledge that I've shared with you this morning. And don't take it at face value. Start studying. Start studying. You say, which version should I study first? Duh. The FBI and the Secret Service who are responsible for counterfeiters. Do you know which counterfeiters they study? None. They study the real copies, the real bills, so that when they see a counterfeit, it jumps out at them. You study this book, know it inside and out, so when somebody offers a counterfeit, you'll say, whoa, that's not what the Bible says. But we've got a responsibility to know it. In order to know it, we're going to have to read it. Okay? And you say, I have trouble reading. Okay, get it on CD and listen to it. Or get on the Internet. They'll read it to you. But read the right version. Okay? Now, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. You don't know if you'd go to heaven or not. I can take this book and show you and in just a moment, we're going to stand together and Brother Greg's going to come lead us in a verse of an invitation song, maybe a couple of verses. And if you want to get saved, if you want to know that you're going to heaven, this is the time. This is the place. Today's the day. You just step out and come as we begin to sing. If you're already saved, the Holy Spirit's convicted your heart this morning about something going on in your life. Maybe you've been wasting time. Maybe you've been worshiping other gods. Maybe you've been led astray, deceived in some way, and you come here at this altar, get things right with God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's stand together. Our heads bowed and eyes closed. Brother Greg comes, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise, not only to give it to us without error, but to preserve it for us. The Lord, help us to recognize the importance of having an accurate translation of your word. Because we don't read Greek and Hebrew. And dear Lord, bless the invitation according to your will, according to your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Just as I am. Just as I am without one plea.